Welcome back. This is your host, Charles Cook of the Immigration Hour. Um, it's great to be with you today. Uh, we, uh, I wasn't going to usually do a show today. Today's August uh, 13th. I'm actually heading out on a vacation tomorrow. Uh, so next week we will definitely not have a show since I will be in Portugal. But I was, uh, I, I was pressed to do today's show because of the release yesterday uh, by DHS of the new regulations on uh, public charge. Uh, these regulations uh, are, have been obviously expected for well over a year. Uh, we've been kind of sitting on these pins and needles to see you know, when they were going to put this out. And it's quite clear that one of the reasons they took almost a year after the receipt of 300,000 comments, which they mostly ignored, by the way, uh, was really quite simple. They were trying to make this particular rule litigation-proof. Um, well, they should have done a lot better job, and maybe they should have asked some actual litigators. Now, let's, we're going to take a deep dive in today's show in three different segments as we talk about uh, what this particular regulation means uh, in the context of individual people, uh, and a- as well as what kind of legal challenges uh, this will be facing. Let's start out with the most basic issue here, is that who issued this rule? Uh, this issue rule was issued by the USCIS, uh, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, and was announced yesterday by the acting director, Ken Cusinelli. Cusinelli is uh, illegally serving as the acting director of the agency since he does not comply with the, ha- with the Vacancies Act. Now, I imagine that that will be uh, probably one of the issues in the complaint that will be filed against the agency, is you can't have, an, I suppose, an acting director signing off on this rule uh, who has been illegally appointed. Now, the rule itself amends different sections of the immigration uh, uh, regulations found in 8 CFR. It amends 103, 212, 213, 214, 245, and 248. What's interesting about the regulation itself I mean, is that it's entirely based on one particular uh, provision in immigration law. Uh, this uh, particular provision in immigration law you will find at section 212A4 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, section 212A4 uh, of the Immigration and Nationality Act is the provision that talks about uh, public charge. Um, and uh, the public charge provision, uh, where uh, it is listed among the, the various types of um, uh, uh, things that make somebody inadmissible. So it starts out as this. Section 212, which we'll find, we'll find in 8 U.S.C. 1182, says this, uh, A., uh, classes of aliens ineligible for visas or admissions, except as otherwise provided in this chapter, aliens, these are foreign nationals, who are inadmissible under the following paragraphs are ineligible to receive visas and ineligible to be admitted to the United States. Now, these particular provisions apply to people applying to enter the United States. So it applies in the context of a visa issuance at a consulate, Uh, where supposedly USCIS has no authority, uh, or in the adjustment of status of individuals. Um, Presumably, it could also be applied in the context of naturalization, 
um, because to naturalize, you have to show that you're not otherwise inadmissible to the United States. And then it goes to Section 4. And here's what Section 4 says. And this has been within our immigration laws in some way or another for a very long time. Uh, the most recent incarnation of it uh, was, was in 1996, where they kind of tweaked a little bit. It says this. And the, so 830 pages of Federal Register publication based on the following. One, uh, 4A, in general, any foreign national or alien who, in the opinion of the consular officer at the time of application for a visa, comma, or in the opinion of the attorney general, just should have been changed to be the DHS secretary, at the time, or, or the EUI, the judges at the time of adjustment, at the time of application for admission or adjustment of status, is likely at any time to become a public charge, is it admissible? That's the statutory language. It is, as, you, as I just read it to you, extraordinarily broad, intentionally broad, because it was designed when it was created back in the 20s or the teens uh, of last century, was designed to keep people out of the country. Now, now of course, you just can't say, in their opinion, that's, that's, that's not going to pass any muster as far as discretion is concerned. So the Congress then says, factors to be taken into account. In determining whether a foreign national is inadmissible under this paragraph, the consular office or the attorney general slash DHS secretary shall at a minimum consider the foreign nationals one, age, two, health, three, family status, four, assets, resources, and financial status, and five, education and skills. So the law itself says take a look at the foreign national. How old are they? What kind of health condition do they have? Families, who is there to help support them? What kind of assets, resources, or financials does that individual have? And what education or skill set are they bringing? Two, in addition to those factors, the consular officer or attorney general may consider any affidavit of support under Section 1183 of this section for purpose of exclusion of this paragraph. So Section 1183A of this particular paragraph says enforceability. No affidavit of support may be accepted by an attorney general or a consular officer to establish that an alien is not excludable as a public charge unless such affidavit is executed by the sponsor of the alien as a contract, A, in which the sponsor agrees to provide support to maintain the sponsored alien at an annual income that is not less than 125% of the poverty line during the period in which the affidavit is enforceable, B, is legally enforceable against the sponsor by the sponsored alien, <clears throat> the federal government, any state or political division, subdivision of state, or any other entity that provides a mean-tested public benefit consistent with this section, and C, in which the sponsor agrees to submit to the jurisdiction of any federal or state court for purposes of actions brought under Section B2. The affidavit of support is enforceable with respect to those benefits provided to an alien before the date the alien is naturalized as a U.S. citizen or, if earlier, the termination date provided in Paragraph 3. 
Paragraph 3 says that an FDA support is not enforceable after such a time as the alien has worked 40 qualifying quarters of coverage as the final Security Act, 10 years, or can be credited with that, or in the case of such qualifying quarters credible for any period beginning 1996, for purposes of this section, a term number of qualifying quarters, it goes into that, um, and or the person naturalizes. So they either naturalize or they work 10 years as a permanent resident. Um, and uh, the attorney general shall ensure the appropriate information is provided to the alien into the save system. So what you're doing is upon notification that a sponsored alien had received any means-tested public benefit, the appropriate non-governmental entity which provides such benefit or the appropriate entity of the federal or state government shall request reimbursement by the sponsor in the amount equal to the unreimbursed cost of such benefit. So Congress is thinking ahead here. Look, if I'm going to sponsor my mom and my mom goes on means-tested public benefits, just come after me because ask me for the money back. In my 30 years of doing this, of immigration law, and in the 23 years that this law has been in effect like this, I don't know of a single case that this has happened outside the context of a divorce where a spouse was seeking alimony. And interestingly enough, um, I don't know of any state or federal agency that asked for their money back. So, and this, because this becomes important as we discuss the actual rules. Uh, of course, you have 45 days to respond. If you don't pay, you can take an action in court. Um, and you have 10 years from the date they last received public benefits to get, the, get this get the agency. And you can even use a appropriate agency, hire a collection agency to do this, so they don't have to do it. Um, so this is, uh, this is really this particular provision, as it's referenced in the context of uh, 212 of the Immigration National Act, does not, ex does not is, well, let me take it a bit of this way. As lawyers and as advocates, for many years, we considered FDA support as the be-all, end-all. You, if you had an FDA support, the rest of these other factors became irrelevant. The Department of State changed that a couple of years ago, and uh, they look at the FDA support as, as it's actually written in the law. And I'm not going to blame the administration on enforcing the law on this. Uh, prior administrations simply didn't enforce the law because they realized what a terrible piece of legislation this actually is. Um, so those, these six factors we read before are not overwhelmed by the FCA support. The FCA support simply is considered in the context of these other factors. So as lawyers, and you know, a lot of lawyers listen to this podcast, we have to do a better job of explaining, just as if we would be explaining that our client's not inadmissible for purposes of a, uh, a crime he may have committed or on one of the other grounds of inadmissibility, we have to explain why they meet this standard and would not become a public charge. Now, Section 4 uh, of 212A4 says this further. Any alien who seeks admission or adjustment of status under a visa number available uh, in family-sponsored immigration um, is inadmissible unless they get um, the FDA support signed by the individual. Um, the person petitioning for the ANSI admission must have executed that event. That event. In, in certain employment-based immigrants, any alien who seeks admission or adjustment sets under a visa number by virtue of classification by a relative of the alien or by an entity in which the alien has a relative such significant ownership is inadmissible without the FAO's support. And the, the exception to this rule is um, VAWA self-petitioners don't need it. 
Uh, UVs petitioners don't need it. Uh, TVs petitioners don't need it. So there are certain um, qualified aliens that are exempted from this rule uh, under this. This battered spouses, for example, uh, don't need it. Um, and so at the end of the day, you don't need this for those specific set of people, but everybody else needed this. So that's public charge. Now, why is that important? Because this 800-page rule uh, is all about the public charge. Uh, it's about this very brief, very short section of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Now, the rule finally is going to be published tomorrow, be effective October 15, 2019, short of an injunction being in place. Um, at least in one of the Facebook groups I'm on, there's talk of putting a pool together about when this will actually be enjoined. Uh, my guess is 45 days from the date. So I would say by October 1, uh, this rule uh, may be, in fact, be enjoined in its operation. Um, and uh, what's interesting about this particular, uh, one of the really interesting parts of, uh, of this particular uh, provision is that um, it allows for uh, the creation of bonds uh, to people to come into the country uh, to make sure that they don't go uh, below, they don't go on public welfare. Uh, so we're gonna, let's, let's take a, a little bit of a look at this. Um, the rule um, is, uh, first of all, probably most important to understand, the rule is uh, not retroactive. Um, that is, the use of public benefits prior to this rule um, is not, uh, 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 cannot be used against an individual in determining uh, whether they're per se ineligible as we get into the more per se rules of this process. What I do love about this is they do make this distinction early on in the reg. This rule does not apply to U.S. citizens, even if the U.S. citizen is related to an alien subject to the public ground of inadmissibility. The rule also does not apply to aliens whom Congress exempted from the ground of charge of inadmissibility, nor does this apply to rules to whom I, I, DHS has statutory discretion to waive the ground of inadmissibility if they've actually done it. Uh, okay, so now that you've told us who it doesn't apply to, uh, let's take a, a, a kind of a dive to see who this rule, in fact, does apply to. We're going to do that when we come back here after this, my short break, your not-so-short break, here on the Immigration Hour. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour. Again, your host, Charles Cook. Great to be with you. So we spent the first part of this podcast kind of looking at the law. What does the law allow the government to do? And then really until this law, this bill, this, I'm sorry, this regulation is going to be published, the federal government and USCIS, Department of State, until a couple of years ago, did not really use this particular uh, uh, um, provision in a way that um, it, it was damaging to a lot of immigrants. It was not, um, uh, uh, you know, it was it wasn't something you thought a lot about. Um, and uh, what I what I loved in the first, really, the first, oh my gosh, four hundred pages of this rule, the, the DHS, the USCIS, basically spends all their time. Uh, rejecting uh, all of the commentary, uh, the, the hundreds of thousands of uh, particular comments about uh, why this rule uh, and, and is bad, when different provisions are bad. Um, it is, um, uh, 
Uh, I mean, you can you can read yourself crazy. It will take you a day to read this stuff. Although, again, if you're a practicing lawyer, I think you have to read this. You have to know where they're coming from. Uh, but unless you're the person that you're that's going to be suing on this, you don't have to spend a lot of time uh, looking at you know the myriad numbers of uh, of comments and the responses to the comments. What you really want to focus your time on is uh, why uh, the things that they've changed here uh, as, as part of this that are going to have the lasting impact uh, on your clients. You know, what it, what it really means uh, to, uh, th- that these changes really have an impact for uh, your clients. Now, th- there is on page 20 or so an outline of the things they're changing. Well, you can read my blog at immigration.net slash blog on this. Um, But really, you want to look at uh, uh, the process. Now, one of the best parts of this is where they, they tell you how long it's going to take you to fill this form out. Um, and they say under the Paperwork Reduction Act, it's only going to take you about 30 minutes um, uh, to actually complete the necessary additional paperwork. Uh, that, is, uh, that is a joke. <laughs> uh, think about this. They estimate that 336,000 people just on the form I-129 uh, will, be, uh, uh, will be filling this form out. Uh, it's only going to cost you another $115 million in costs. Um, so really no big deal uh, as part of the time that it's going to take you to fill all this crazy stuff out as part of this process. They also do a, an interesting job in a table format of the, in the Paperwork Reduction Act about all the forms that are impacted by this change. And there are a lot of them, and it's not just the I-864, but it's basically every non-immigrant and immigrant form that you will have to um, uh, change uh, and what it means for each of these processes as, uh, as part, of, a part of the review of this. So I'm going I'm to leave you uh, to, the, uh, to the changes. And we really want to dive here into the actual legal changes that they made here. Now, you, you're going to, by the way, not see the legal changes until you get to around uh, page 750. That's where the, actually the regulations start. Uh, so... They initially uh, look at section 103.6, and they add a section of 103, which is about surety bonds in immigration law. Uh, all surety bonds posted in immigration cases must be executed on forms designated by DHS, a copy of which any writer or detention must be furnished to the obligor. DHS is authorized to approve a bond for the extension of liability of surety, a request for delivery of collateral security. Um, basically, they've created a category for public charge bonds. Public charge bonds, the threshold bond amount for public charge bonds is set forth in HCFR 213.1. Uh, this, partic- this particular bond means, uh, which we'll get to in a second, that if the consulate believes that by providing a bond, you can overcome the public charge bonds, he... He can create, he can have that bond. Um, the bond is breached under Section 103 where there's a violation of conditions. For example, you use public benefits that you shouldn't have used. 
uh, and then they're going to they're going to seize that bond. Now let's look at the way application for waivers of admissibility for T. So they've got T visa inadmissibility that's waived um, here in section two twelve dot twenty. The alien requesting the Im- it talks about well let's go back in here. It talks about a lot of the waiver stuff. So now the the the, the B. 212.21 definitions. For purposes of 8 CFR 212.20 through 212.23, the following definitions of charge. Public charge. Public charge means an alien, foreign national, who receives one or more public benefits as defined in subparagraph B of this section for more than 12 months in the aggregate with any, within any 36-month period, such that, for instance, receipt of two benefits in one month counts as two months. Okay? So, all right. So we know a public charge, somebody who's likely to be on a public charge, is definitionally done uh, if you meet a, monetary, a, a numerical standard, 12 months within a uh, 36-month period. But if you use... Two different types of benefits in a month, that's, that could be in one month. If you use six different types of benefits in one month, that could be six months in one month. So what is a public benefit? That's B. Public benefit means, one, any federal, state, local, or tribal cash assistance for income maintenance other than tax credit, including, but presumably not limited to, Supplemental Social Security, SSI. Two, TANF. Temporary assistance for needy families. Three, federal, state, or local cash benefit programs from income maintenance, often called general assistance in the state context, but has other names. So cash, if you're getting cash assistance under SSI, TANF, a state program, or other sort of uh, income maintenance program. Two, SNAP, supplemental nutrition assistance. So if you got SNAP within the, you as the foreign national, not as the, uh, not it uh, received it. All right, that's how we're looking at it right now. Section 8 housing, um, Medicaid, except for emergency medical care, which does not, so you can get emergency medical care and you're fine. Services or benefits funded by Medicaid but provided under the Individual Disabilities Act, I, edu- Disability Education Act, IDEA. School-based services or benefits provided to individuals who are at, the, uh, at or below the oldest eligible age for secondary education. Uh, now, that's a good question. What, what does that mean? Are they talking about free school lunches? Unclear. Benefits received by an alien under 21 years of age or a woman during pregnancy um, would uh, not be included. So school-based benefits, not included. Uh, mercy medical care, not included. Uh, pregnancy care, uh, not included. Public housing under Section 9, not included. Uh, and then some other public benefits uh, in B1 through B6, which we'll uh, get to in a second. So those are not um, uh, included under the med- under Medicaid. Those supplemental benefits there are not considered public benefits. Okay. Uh, also, does not include public benefits received by a foreign national who, at the time of receipt of public benefit, or at the time of filing the application, a public benefit is in the armed forces, active duty, is a spouse of such person. Um, and then B, in the subsequent adjudication for a benefit, 
for which the judge public charge credit applies public benefits as defined in section do not include any public benefits received by an alien during periods in which the alien was present in an immigration category that exempt from public charge. That's the U visa category or, or the uh, T visa category. Um, public benefits do not include any public benefits that were or will be received by children of U.S. citizens whose lawful admission for permanent residence in the legal custody areas result automatically to acquisition of citizenship, okay? Children of citizens are permanent resident. Children of U.S. citizens are permanent attending an interview. Now, then, so what that seems to exclude is U.S. citizen children of foreign nationals. They don't, they don't really talk about that. But again, I view this regulation as impacting the individual, because they always talk about the alien, the foreign national, not their children. So next definition, likely at any time to become a children charge. Likely at any time to become a public charge means more likely than not at any time in the future to become a public charge as defined in 212.21 above, all right? Based on the totality of their circumstances, the totality of circumstances, which we'll get to here in a second. Now, this is a preponderance of the evidence standard. So that means you, as the foreign national, the foreign, as our clients, carry the burden of proving that they are more likely than not not to become a public charge. Um, so we have to prove a negative. You know, we know how fun it's proved to be a negative. Uh, we have to prove our client will not likely become a public charge. For purposes of public charge inadmissibility determinations, if the foreign national is 21 years of age or older, or under the age of 21 and married, the alien's household, household includes the alien, their spouse, if physically residing with the parent, the alien, and their children physically residing with them. The alien's other children not residing with the alien from the alien provides or is required by 50% of their financial support and is evidenced by a, by a child's good order and any other individual individual provides or is required to provide at least 50% of the financial support of that individual. Um, Okay, so now we've got, that's the alien household, which they've got lots of people that are trying to add into the household here about the 50% benefit. Next, the definition of receipt of public benefits. Now, this is important because this means, are you getting it or are your kids getting it? So here's how they define it. The receipt of public benefits occurs when a public benefit granting agency provides a public benefit, as defined above, uh, to the alien as a beneficiary whether in the form of cash, vouchers, services. So you got the goods. Applying for a public benefit does not constitute receipt of public benefits, although it may suggest a likelihood of future receipt. So if I applied for uh, WIC or food stamps for my U.S. citizen kids, I didn't get those received public benefits, but I can look at it about whether I might get food stamps in the future. Certification for future receipt of a public benefit does not constitute receipt of public benefit, although it may suggest a likelihood of future receipt. An alien's receipt of or application for or certification for public benefits solely on behalf of another individual does not constitute receipt or application or certification for such alien. So that means you can apply for your kids, <clears throat> although you've got that little application, that little, I would say the disclaimer in the second sentence does not modify that last sentence. And therefore, <clears throat> I think I've got a leg to stand on there. 
I think I'll certainly win that in court. And therefore, the individual can apply for benefits for their children. That's really, really important. Primary caregiver means, I forgot to italicize that, means an alien 18 years of age or older who is responsible for caring for somebody. All right. So those are the definitions. Now, that's helpful. Actually, I think the definition is quite helpful in, uh, for those individuals who are applying for benefits for their children. Because keep in mind, generally speaking, you can't get public benefits as a, an immigrant. It's, it's impossible under most circumstances. And since they're excluding public health care, I mean, emergency Medicare, you know, this should, again, have limited impact in that context. Um, now, the key to this is the perspective determination on the totality of the circumstances. All right. What does this mean based on the totality of the circumstances, whether they're likely of becoming a public charge at any time in the future? So they must have done this by weighing all factors that are relevant to whether the alien is more likely than not at any time in the future to receive one or more public benefits. So immigration lawyers, <clears throat> much like you're preparing a waiver for purposes of um, uh, 212, uh, like a 212H waiver or a fraud waiver or a 237H, any kind of waiver you'd be preparing, this is how you're going to have to prepare on the public charge ground. So... I think, unfortunately, we're going to charge a lot more for purposes of this process, uh, for getting somebody a green card. The determination of an alien's likelihood of becoming a public charge at any time in the future must be based on the totality of the circumstances. Um, by weighing all the factors of whether the alien is more likely than not at any time in the future to receive public benefits for more than 12 months in the aggregate within a 36-month period. Now, this is weird. Let's read that again. The determination of an alien's likelihood of becoming a public charge at any time in the future must be based on the totality of the alien's circumstances by weighing all factors that are relevant to whether the alien is more likely than not at any time in the future to receive one or more public benefits for more than 12 months in the aggregate within a 36-month period. Whoa! So if I'm likely to only use public benefits 11 months in the next 36-month period, then I'm golden. Yeah, that sounds as stupid as it, as it is written, apparently. Except as necessary to fully evaluate evidence, DHS will not specifically assess whether an alien qualifies or would qualify for a public benefit. So here are the minimum factors to consider. One, the alien's age. Now, again, this comes out of the statute. This is, they didn't create this. This is out of the statute. When considering an age, but how they use the age is this. DHS will consider whether the alien's age makes the alien more likely than not to become a public charge at any time in the future, such as by impacting the alien's ability to work, including whether the alien is between the ages of 18 and the minimum early retirement age for Social Security. Wow. So if you're under 18 or over 62, your age works against you. This is kind of what they wanted to do in the, uh, in the point system they were doing. The alien's health. The DHS will consider whether the alien's health 
makes the alien more likely than not to become a public charge, including whether the alien has been diagnosed with a medical condition that is likely to require medical treatment or institutionalization. What? Who uses the word institutionalization? What do we live in, 1955? Or that will interfere with the ability to provide or care for him or herself, attend school, or work upon admission or adjustment of status. So now, under that particular section, the consideration includes the medical exam by the civil surgeon, like these guys or any rocket scientist, evidence of a medical condition required essential treatment will interfere with the work, um, but I would suggest that if you have insurance that will cover this, that you will be able to overcome that particular provision. So lots of new companies will pop up uh, providing insurance for new immigrants. The alien's family status, number three, the standard. When considered an alien's family status, DHS will consider the alien's household size and whether the household size makes the alien more likely not to become a public charge anytime in the future. So if you have too many kids... You can't come in? Is that what that means? <clears throat> so I think about the individual who I immigrated about 10 years ago who had nine children. Would he have to do a Sophie's Choice? Oh, only five of them are going to come. The other four, we can't come because, I'm sorry, they're going to be public charge in the future. Um, this, is, this is from a, to a country that is shrinking if we don't have immigration. Yeah, this is, this is a stupid provision. Uh, four, the alien's assets, resources, and financial sense. The standard is this. When considering their assets, resources, and financial sense, the DHS will consider whether it's such assets, resources, and financial sense, excluding any income from illegal activities, drug sales, income from public benefits, make the alien more likely to not be become a future charge, including whether the household gross income is at least 125%, the alien's household gross income, uh, and the gross income is less than 25%, they may submit an affidavit of ownership of significant assets. Significant assets are stocks, bonds, CDs, real estate, other assets, with which the combined cash value exceeds, uh, was it 500%? Uh, so basically, they want you to have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 125,000, five times the difference in the alien's household income. And so really, they want you to have $125,000. And they want you to look at financial liabilities, whether they've received public benefits, of course. Evidence includes gross annual household income. Uh, each member of the household income will be considered a recent tax year transcript. So now you have to have transcripts, not tax returns. Um, you want to get cash assets and resources, but checking accounts, non-cash resources. Um, uh, evidence that they've applied for any public benefit uh, after the date of the rule. So anything before that doesn't matter. Uh, been certified to receive public benefits, they can consider that. Um, whether they've showing whether the alien has identified as showing that they've not qualified for benefits, um, whether they've received a fee waiver, which is crazy. So they can consider whether or not that uh, um, whether the aliens receive a fee waiver. Let's apply for a program. So they can basically, if you apply for a fee waiver, they can consider that against you. Your credit history and credit score in the United States, which of course they don't have in a lot of other countries. Uh, so now we've got to order our clients' credit score, uh, their mortgages, their car loans. Un the thing about, I, mean, I can't tell you how many people immigrate their spouses uh, who have really terrible credit. I mean, that's a, I mean, a huge number. Whether they have sufficient household assets and resources. Um, and then uh, we're going to take a break here because we've gone a little bit long on this segment. But I want to finish up the considerations that they'll make about whether you're going to be a public charge. We'll be right back here on the Immigration Hour.
Well, not a long break for you. Very short, short break for me as well, because I'm just kind of on a roll going through this. And as I've read this now a couple of times. Um, but as you deep dive into this, you realize that there is plenty of room for mischief in the hands of, uh, of immigration officers, or as they like to call them, adjudicators, uh, as well as what we're seeing in the hands of the D Department of State. Now, these rules only apply to USCIS. They're not used by the Department of State of Consulates. The consulates have already been doing, at least the, the ones we deal with regularly, Dana Juarez, for example, have been using these already to exclude people. And I think we can develop an effective way of presenting the evidence so that it affects a minimal number of people. But it's quite clear that there will be people specifically excluded from the United States because they don't that they, they, they are believed to be public charges. They will be poor people. They will be old people. Uh, they will be people that will be your moms and dads. They will be people that, once given the opportunity to be in the United States, would normally make a remarkable contribution, but who, judging their current situation, simply don't meet the current standard. Uh, people will self-select themselves out of uh, immigration because of this, even though they, they could have, with effective advocacy, met the standard. Uh, people will not apply for public benefits for their children, even though they could, in fact, qualify for them and would have no negative effect from them. Let's take a look at the other grounds here they use for determining whether you're likely to become a public charge. The aliens' education and skills. When considering alien skills, they will consider whether they have adequate education and skills to obtain or maintain lawful employment with an income sufficient to avoid becoming more likely to be a public charge. So here's my question. What if your skill is working at a chicken processing plant where you're, you're not making, you're making 120% of poverty level income, maybe. Um, so basically, if you're going to be a farm worker, if you're going to be a lower skilled worker, you're going to be a nanny, yeah, we don't think you have the education and skills to make sufficient income to avoid becoming a public charge. So less, the lesser skilled jobs, again, going back to the point system that uh, Trump so wanted to put into place, this is where that comes into effect. So what kind of evidence do you have to show whether you have the skills uh, to maintain lawful employment and income? Uh, one, your employment history. Um, last three years of tax return, tax transcripts. Um, a uh, letter from your employer, your high school diploma. So heaven forbid you don't have a high school diploma, uh, like many immigrants from Latin America do not. Uh, whether you have higher education, whether you have occupational skills, certification or licenses, whether you're proficient in English, because you got to be proficient in English to gut chickens. Uh, whether the alien's a primary caregiver, such that the alien lacks an employment history, is not currently employed or not employed full-time. Only one alien with a household can be considered a primary caregiver to the same individual. Uh, this is fascinating um, that they, they really want to keep your mom and dad out. They want to keep it anybody without a high school diploma. Uh, this is how this particular provision is going to be used. I can't wait to be able to challenge. You know, you know we can't go to federal court on discretionary decisions. But you can go to court when there's abuse of discretion under the reg. And I can see us going to court a lot on, a, on remarkable abuses of discretion because so many of the adjudicators will be remarkably poorly trained, will make remarkably poor decisions. Um, and people will, unfortunately, get hurt by this. Now, the last thing they want you to look at is the alien's prospective immigration status and expected period of admission. So they will consider your immigration status that you seek 
and your period of admission as it relates to your ability to financially support yourself during your stay. Why? Because this rule is going to apply to non-immigrants as well as immigrants. So as far as H-1Bs, L's, E's, um, all O's, P's, you're all going to be required to show that you're going to make enough income. Here's a great example. I represent a number of golfers who are on the lesser tours. They're not making any money at all. I mean, they're not. They're basically using a sponsor's exemption and sponsorship to play and are subsisting on money from others. They're not working at all. How are they likely to show they won't become a public charge in the future? This, again, remarkable lack of forethought that went into this that is, maybe, maybe they're playing, you know, four-dimensional chess. That, hey, we're just going to use this to just keep people out of the country since you won't let us change the law. Um, should Trump lose the next election, I think the ground cell would be sufficient that on the first day in office, one of the first published uh, things in, in the Federal Register would be to delete this particular amendment to the regulations and return to the prior standards. Um, an affidavit of support is required um, under for, for families and for, for, as we talked about earlier, employment-based cases. Um, now, there must be, in, in the affidavit of support, they will consider what the likelihood of the sponsor will actually provide the required financial support. This actually goes to what the Department of State's been doing. The affidavit of support, if it's from somebody that is not related to you, from a friend who's willing to help, that, they don't have to accept that. Would you be willing to provide the support? Well, that's stupid when you think about the law that we read. Because it's not whether they would actually provide the support. You can literally turn the claim over to a collection agency to get the money out of them. And it's per se liability. Per se. Get that money out. The, the state can come in and say, hey, we want our money back from the sponsor. Perfect. It's stupid to say that whether they would actually provide the support because by statute, you don't, it's not whether they would, would do it. They would have to do it. Uh, so they look at the sponsor's annual income, assets, relationship, uh, whether they live with the person, whether they submitted other factors. They say heavily weighted factors. The following factors below weigh heavily in a public charge determination. The mere presence of any one heavily weighted factor, however, does not make the alien more or less likely to become a public charge. So just one heavily weighted factor is not bad. But two, of course, means you're toast. So one... One heavily weighted factor in favor of finding the alien is likely to become a trouble charge. The alien's not a full-time student and is authorized to work, but unable to demonstrate current employment, recent employment, or reasonable prospect of employment. Hmm. Two, the alien has received or approved to receive one or more public benefits. Only though before we read that approved to receive is not a basis to consider. Uh, the benefit that you got it, now they're saying that it is. So the, the regulation itself is internally inconsistent in their whole 12-month, 36-month thing. Um, two, the al uh, next three, the alien diagnosed with a medical condition required to receive medical treatment or institutionalization or interfere with him or herself attend school or work. So if you've got a medical condition that's chronic, um, you can't come to America. That's, that, that's, that's what they're saying. If you're uninsured and you don't have the prospect of private health insurance and don't have the financial resources to pay for medical insurance, you're out. Uh, or you're previously found inadmissible deportable on a public charge. Well, that's not very many people. 
Heavily weighted positive factors. Heavily weighted positive factors are this. Your household income, assets, or resources um, are 250% of the poverty level guidelines. All right. So your household of two, you're making $42,000. Household of four, you're making $65,000. That's a heavily weighted positive factor. You're authorized to work and currently employed in a legal industry. Not that in a legal, they have to be lawyers? No, I think they're afraid that the job has to not be gambling. Can you be involved in marijuana? Very good question. Uh, at, and your current salary uh, is 250% of Kylan guidelines with your household size. Three, you have private health insurance, uh, which is appropriate for the expected period of admission and does not include health insurance for which the alien receives subsidies under the Obamacare. Treatment of benefits received before the act. For purposes of this regulation, this is important, DHS will consider as a negative factor, but not as a heavily weighted negative factor, any amount of cash assistance supporting aliens received before the effective date. Um, so while they can't exclude you for that, they're going to consider that a slightly negative factor. Uh, so if you use Social Security, TANF, um, uh, Medicaid, although not the exempted ones, then that's a negative factor. So you're going to need a lawyer just to figure out which of the particular things are weighted or not weighted. Um, and, of course, they, they go then through the people that are exempt, refugees, asylees, Amerasian immigrants, Afghan and Iraqi interpreters, Cuban and Haitian immigrants, um, Cuban Adjustment Act people, uh, Nicara people, uh, Lautenberg parolees, uh, SIJs, um, uh, people under registry, uh, temporary protected status are, not, not, are, are exempt. Uh, so it goes through lots of the exempt employees, uh, people that come to the U.S., U visa holders, uh, American Indians born in Canada, uh, nationals of Vietnam uh, applying for adjustment of status. And then there's some more limited exemptions um, uh, where an FAA support is required. There's also a waiver available uh, for applicants applying under the S visa, which very few people do. And then the final part of this I want to address is the bonds. We talked about this before, where they amend the adjustment of status to alien on submission of a public charge bond. DHS may allow the alien to submit a public charge bond if the alien is otherwise admissible. Uh, bond must meet the conditions set forth in this section. It's entirely within the discretion of the officer, and DHS will generally not favorably exercise his discretion to allow submission of a public charge bond if he's got one or more heavily weighted negative factors. So if you don't have any heavily weighted negative factors and you can't, then why should you need a bond in the first time? So it's a cash or cash equivalent, shorty bond. The minimum bond is $8,100 adjusted for inflation each year. Conditions of the bond remain in the place until the person naturalizes or obtains U.S. citizenship uh, or uh, reached a five-year residence uh, as a permanent resident. Um, and... Um, the public charge bond can only be submitted uh, once the DHS notifies the alien or the representative in allowing uh, this to happen. Uh, so this is uh, a, a fascinating creation of the immigration and, and alien uh, and how to lose your bond and stuff. This is um, really uh, fascinating. Of course, the, the regulation also applies uh, under 214 uh, for maintaining non-immigrant status in the United States. Uh, it's into effect as part of documentary evidence in a, an adjustment of status application. Uh, changes of status, uh, it's added in there as well. 
and creates uh, within Section 248 A1A um, a new regulation um, looking at public benefits received after arrival in the United States. Uh, again, another reason for them to, to deny this. Uh, this, is, uh, this is fascinating. Uh, the rule itself is um, uh, now going to take effect. It will likely be uh, stayed by the, uh, uh, by the courts as a fight occurs. But I think going forward, we have to be prepared to make sure our clients comply and do everything possible uh, that show that our clients are eligible to immigrate to the United States. There's your deep dive on the new public charge grounds. It's bad. It's not as bad as it could have been, uh, but it will cost a lot of people uh, their families. It will separate families. It will make us poorer as a country um, and will not help us be any richer by any stretch of the imagination. This is your host, Charles Cook, here on the Immigration Hour. Uh, it's uh, great to have you as a listener. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out at uh, chuck at immigration.net. Visit us on our website at www.immigration.net. Uh, or follow us on Facebook, uh, at Cook Baxter Immigration. And finally, follow me on Twitter at CKUCK. Uh, we post freak- I post frequently on there. Some of it's even fun. Uh, have a great week. We'll see you in a couple of weeks when I get back from my vacation.